Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Close to 33 million people lived in the United States in 1861 and participated in the Civil War that followed. Over the past century and a half, a massive amount of scholarship has been published on the activities of half of those 33 million people. The other half have been overlooked or stereotyped as spies, nurses, or plantation mistresses. Professor Thavolia Glimpf now strikes a blow to right this imbalance with her new book, The Women's Fight, The Civil War's Battles for Home, Freedom, and Nation. We'll talk with Professor Glimpf tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Pandemic Annex on Oxford Road as we remain out of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, not speaking for ECU or for anyone else, just myself, and I know my guest will do the same as we always do here. It is uh, halfway, beyond halfway through the second block of the fall term as we continue to uh, enjoy uh, the block schedule that is foisted upon us this semester. There was no football this past weekend. It was a bye week for the ECU Pirates, but my alma mater, University of Michigan, started playing, and we get to keep the little brown jug another year, the oldest college football trophy, uh, the namesake of the restaurant where my friends and I used to hang out uh, uh, in Ann Arbor. So that was good news. This past week, we had the first meeting of the Ad Hoc Naming Committee at uh, ECU. 
the committee that the Board of Trustees has called into existence to review the names of buildings across campus. Uh, five years ago, BCU changed the name of one of its residence halls. Uh, you, you may remember that story. It was named for uh, Governor Charles Acock. And at that time, ECU was out ahead of the national curve. Duke University had just made a similar change, but UNC Chapel Hill had not acted and other schools had not acted yet. And uh, we were pleased to be doing, uh, being a, a proactive, get, getting ahead of the curve. But that was five years ago and so much has changed in the interim that we are now reviewing uh, numerous other building names to make sure we know just who these people were, what they stood for, and to see if any of them need to be uh, modified or explained or entirely removed. So keep you aware of that as we go along. Also this week, I got a lovely uh, tote bag in the mail from the Thomas Harriet College of Arts and Sciences as a thank you for the gift to the Wade Dudley Scholarship Fund which I explained to them was your gift. Uh, your generous donations to the show in August and September were passed along. I topped them up uh, with an addition of my own funds and was able to write uh, four digits on the check, which was nice, and give it to uh, this scholarship fund in honor of my late colleague. But the tote bag came to me since I was the one who sent the uh, actual donation, I asked if they could supply tote bags to all of you, uh, and they, they said that was not possible, unfortunately. So, just one. Uh, it did make me think, should I get tote bags or Civil War Talk Radio or some other uh, merch, as they call it, to uh, entice people to contribute to the show? I'm not sure what the right thing to do would be, though. So... Uh, we'll just leave, we'll hold, hold off on that idea for a while. In the meantime, new shows will be coming up next uh, Wednesday, November 4th. Stephen Barry will be on the show. He is the one of the uh, stewards of the Private Voices website at uh, altchive.org. And is otherwise involved in non-print and digital Civil War scholarship. He's also written books. We've had him on the show before. But he'll be talking, uh, he and I will be discussing the world of digital Civil War scholarship next week. On the 11th, Robert May has a book appropriate for the coming season, Yuletide in Dixie, Slavery, Christmas, and Southern Memory. November 18th, no live show. It'll be final exams for the fall semester. And the following week, the 25th, is Thanksgiving week. Uh, who knows if people will be traveling, what we'll be doing, but no show that week uh, either. We'll return with two more live shows before the end of the uh, fall season. Timothy B. Smith. Tim Smith comes back with his book, The Union Assaults at Vicksburg, Grant Attacks Pemberton, May 17 through 22, 1863. Tim was supposed to be on in May and had to reschedule, so I'm delighted he'll be back with us. And we'll wrap up with Kenneth No, also returning to the show. He's been on uh, before, and his new book is called The Howling Storm, 
weather climate in the American Civil War. So that's one, hopefully the winds will be blowing outside the windows and we can read about the howling storm from within. You can always follow these at impedimentsofwar.org where Mark Gaffney tells us what's happening. You can contribute to Civil War Talk Radio when you go to that website and click on the PayPal button. It will take care of business from there. But it's not a donation to a charitable cause. I'm not a 501c3. I am completely unaccountable for what I do with the money that you give to the show. Theoretically, it's a Civil War Talk Radio book fund, but the term book is used very loosely. Uh, Don't deduct it on your taxes, whatever you do. Well, tonight we welcome to the show uh, author of the new book, The Women's Fight, The Civil War's Battles for Home, Freedom, and Nation. It is written by Professor Thavolia Glimpf. She is Professor of History and Law at Duke University. And uh, Professor Glimpf, it's nice to have you here. Uh, are, are you there? Can you hear me? I am. Good evening. Thank you for having well, me. Well, welcome to the show. I, I Sure, you do not recall, you and I met very briefly when you gave a talk in Greenville at ECU a couple, well, more than a couple of years yes. ago. Yes, and uh, I, that was on the, the Egypt project, right? That's right, that's right. You were talking about yes. Confederates in Egypt, and I, I went up to you after your talk and said, you've got to uh, uh, join me on Civil War Talk Radio, and you said you were working on this <laughs> big project, and it's... It's taken a while, but here it is. So I'm delighted that uh, that we had the chance to read it and that you're you're here tonight. Uh, so you. how 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 long did it take to put this together? You mentioned in the the acknowledgments this was a long run deal. Well, it, it's very difficult to say because um, I was doing the research for this project at the same time that I was researching. Um, the out of the house of bondage and also um, the um, book on Egypt, uh, which I'm uh, trying to finish now, and um, the second book that I'm working on now on refugees. So it's this project has been part of my life for a long time, but it was only within the last, I'd say, five years that I began to work. Um, uh, like seriously on it, and 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 became the the main project that I was working on. So but the, the research goes back much much longer. Yeah. Now the topic is an enormous one: uh, the women in the Civil War. But I mentioned briefly in the introduction. Traditionally, scholars devote one chapter out of 12 to the women's experience in a general book about the Civil War. Uh, Was that what brought you to the idea that that some more more in-depth coverage is required? Well, the book is, um, as you know, a part of the Littlefield series, um, uh, which has several books on different topics on the Civil War. And (laughs) When I worked with Gary Gallagher, um, uh, and and uh, we decided that you know this would be a good book for me to write for the series, and then I had a really difficult time determining exactly what the approach would be 
uh, what was it that I could add to what was already uh, out there. Um, you're right that most books on the Civil War might devote a uh, chapter or so to women, but at the same time, in recent years, there have been several really outstanding books on women in the Civil War, women as nurses, women um Northern women uh, in, in organizations devoted to supporting soldiers. And so I, I was very cognizant of, of the existing work, the existing historiography, and I did not want to um, certainly duplicate that work. And, of course, uh, the number of um, diaries and um, reminiscences you know, it's just uh, too many to for any one scholar to read um, mm-hmm. in a short lifetime, and so I had that to consider. And also the um, uh, the primary documents that are housed in archives. And so I finally, after much consideration and much going uh, through my notes, that what I really wanted to do was to think about women. Um, across these boundaries that we um, have set up to divide women in the war. So typically, a chapter in a traditional book on women would just be about plantation mistresses, right? Or it might mm-hmm. be about northern women um, in, in, in a um, one of the aid societies. And what I kept seeing um, as I read the sources were women who were moving across these boundaries that had, that maybe historians set up for them because they were not boundaries that the women themselves took, um, uh, um, are recognized. And so I wanted to, to think about how women in the North were thinking about women in the South and what happened when they encountered women in the South and vice versa. I wanted to think about how uh, women who had been in contact with each other for, you know, a long time, enslaved women and 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 the women who enslaved them. You know, what changed when they met on the battlefield? What changed when they met in exile? What changed when they met on the roads, you know, moving from one place to another? So it was this idea of thinking about people that they actually lived their lives uh, in contact with each other, not as a separate group, not as enslaved women. Um, I didn't see how it would be possible or useful to write a book just about enslaved women. Um, it's really impossible to do that. And so that was the, 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 the way in which I conceived uh, the book. And once that, um, that was done, writing the book became much easier um, mm-hmm. because the sources were really doing the hard work for me. The sources were showing me these women um, relating to each other in various ways and from various backgrounds. When You mentioned this is in the, the Littlefield series Gary Gallagher uh, edits, and that just raised a question for me. Peter Carmichael wrote the book on the common soldier in that series, and both he and Gary have been on the show and talked about how they – disagreed quite sharply over that book and how what form it ought to take did was you was gary or other people in the editorial process uh amenable to your approach or did you have to argue for it well i think 
probably Gary. I know Gary's been on your show um, before, too, and I think probably Gary um, may have had uh, something different in mind from what I wrote, um, but he was, once he read the early drafts, uh, he was excited about it. Um, it wasn't, I think he, he probably had in mind a more traditional approach, mm-hmm. a more traditional book uh, that looked at women more like, uh, sort of like an update of Massey's, Mary Massey's work. Um, right. But uh, he was totally um, uh, fine with, the, with the, uh, what I uh, uh, turned in. Well, that is good to hear. That it sounds like the way the way things ought to work. That scholars come up with new ideas, and maybe an editor is looking for a traditional update uh, uh, of something in the field. Yeah. But they get presented with something new, and and uh, and we go forward from there. So your yeah, book think, does. Yeah, oh, go ahead. No, I go think ahead, an please. update would have, of Matthew would have been um, quite ordinary. Um, um, Massey's work still stands for what it did, and I was not really inclined to do what she did. Yeah. I'm sorry, you're about uh, well, to ask me a question. Well, I, what I want to do is we're going to take a break in just a minute. I'm going to set up uh, uh, something to ask you as we go, as we start the next section. But you organize uh, the the book into sections that talk about the boundaries that you just described and how, how interactions occur across them, uh, boundaries across region, boundaries across race, boundaries across class, across gender. Um, in, I'm, I'm trying to think how to phrase this. The uh, Well, I guess it makes sense to start at, at the start. The first uh, chapter looks at the importance of home, which really resonates through the entire book. Uh, the notion of, of women and homes. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll break right here, and I'll come back with that question for you, let you think about it for a moment. Uh, we're talking tonight with Thavolia Glimpf. She's the author of The Women's Fight, The Civil War's Battles for Home, Freedom, and Nation. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high energy, all access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. 
Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Professor Thavolia Glimpf, author of The Women's Fight, The Civil War's Battles for Home, Freedom, and Nation. So, in your book, you you look at women in very different circumstances, but the concept of home, uh, which really opens the book, does reoccur throughout. Uh, But this is not a traditional uh, cult of domesticity. Uh, argument that you're making here. It, it's something quite different, isn't it? It is. I, I've always been, as a historian, fascinated and interested in the home as a site of nurturing, as a site of conflict, as a site of um, politics. And too often, it seemed to me, the Southern home had been portrayed just as a sort of a fancy place without any political meaning. And so I think we think of the Southern home, we think of um, Gone with the Wind and, and, mm-hmm. and, and Sarah. And, and from everything that I knew, from everything that I had read, it was just um, not right. Um, it was just wrong. And I grew up in the South, and so I have a special sense of home and the meaning of home as a Southerner. And so I, the more I read, um, the more I was convinced that when Southerners, white Southerners, went to war, um, and they said they were going to war, um, you know, we know they went to war you know, for slavery, but you know, they said they're going to war um, for home, to protect home. And I thought, well, what does that mean? Um, and how does one make a home? What does a home look like, and, and especially in a slave society? And if one is willing to die for home, is it the same thing as saying you're willing to die for slavery? Um, and so I... <clears throat> It, it became evident to me that the Civil War, um, as I write in the book, witnessed um, a sustained attack on this notion of home in the South um, that was seen as equivalent to uh, planter homes. And I thought about planter homes and what they've come to mean in the, the popular imagination and um, and what they actually meant, and you know who determines 
whether or not one has a home or who determines when a house becomes a home and what that looks like and, and whether it's a free home or an unfree home and how does a free home, how is it made? And if it's made using unfree labor, what kind of home is it? So I had so many questions about the meaning of home and as it turned out, that um, the, the, the questions um, kept appearing as well, or concerns about home kept appearing in, in the primary sources, in planters' records, in the records of white women, and also in the reminiscences of black women who had been enslaved. And as I wrote the book, it just fit almost naturally um, that this thing ran through the book and, and um, so that was pretty much um, it. It was that home um, for women especially was critical and enslaved women wanted to make homes and, and some of them felt that in order for them to make their homes and to make free homes, the plantation home had to be destroyed and what does that destruction look like. Um, sometimes it's actually physical destruction where enslaved people tear down parts of a planter home, but sometimes it's also a kind of psychological um, a destruction that's emotional. Um, and I wanted to be able to, to capture that emotional content uh, without uh, sort of going beyond um, the bounds of my field as a historian. You know, I'm not um, <laughs> a trained in psychology or, or anything, but I, I, but I the emotional content was there, and I wanted to to capture some of it in the book. Well, I thought in in your your chapter where you talk about uh, going on the road, refugee uh, families leaving their homes, how this first of all contradicts the Confederate promise to to protect the home. But you describe the South Carolina Low Country planters, for example, leaving their homes. Uh, one example you give is where a, a plantation mistress who has left an enslaved woman behind wants that woman to rejoin the family on the road somewhere, but she can't issue an order now because she's at a distance and the uh, person who is still technically enslaved to her can negotiate and say, well, I'll come with you maybe or maybe not. And thus the, the pre-war hierarchical plantation home is dissolving you know right before the reader's eyes uh without violence but yes. but in a in a, a very yes. real way i thought that was a yes. very interesting example i thought exactly um as you um uh, did that what we see here is the the breaking apart, the breaking down, the disintegration, not only of the plantation home, but of, of these relations and relationships that comprise the, um, the sort of backbone uh, of the plantation home. And, and this woman who, I mean, she, she didn't really need this particular woman, it's Sarah, um, the woman she right. wanted. She didn't need her in particular. Um, she could have gotten any woman. Um, there were other enslaved women around her to cook for her, but she wanted her Sarah. Um, and so when Sarah wouldn't come and they start negotiating for Sarah to come, to me it signaled that this is not the first time that these women have negotiated the terms of their relationship um, mm -hmm. because 
the Anne knew exactly what to do, but what she she thought she knew how she could get Sarah um, by saying, you know, look, if you come, I will make sure that, you know, your husband is here, you'll be surrounded by your relatives and other people that you know. So she knew the value that enslaved people placed on family, on spouses and children, and she tried to use that to get Sarah to come. But Sarah apparently thought, no, I'm better off staying where I am. The chances that I can be a free woman are better here now that she's gone. And so it was that kind of, of change that I, you know, found so fascinating. And at the same time, that the women who owned or enslaved other people and who had been accustomed to certain kinds of rituals could no longer have them, Uh, who knew that enslaved women, for example, had to, uh, when they were on the road, they had to, if they were traveling without their mistresses, they had to have passes. And now... um, these the white women, the elite white women, have to have passes, and they are on the road carrying, you know, um, what little they can carry, um, just as a, a fugitive slave would have been carrying what little she could have carried um, when mm-hmm. she left on the road. So there are these striking um, parallels between their lives now that war has come, and I I thought it was really important to try to capture. The sort of the breaking down of one world at the same time that a new world is arising on top of that world, but it's never clean or, um, you know, pristine or neat. It's all very messy, and I, I thought this is how people's lives were, and, and if I'm going to write about this, I have to capture some of the messiness of the transition as well, um, because that's what sort of was going on on the ground. Now, in another chapter, you you write something that I found very interesting, uh, make me think of experience that many of us have had either going to a resort at some point on vacation or working at a resort, uh, usually in a younger phase of our lives. The tension between people in resort communities who live there and make their living from the usually wealthier guests and the guests themselves – you know, the people living at the, in the community depend on the guests. They, they, they don't want them to go away, but they don't necessarily like them. Uh, and when suddenly you have this refugee influx, these are not vacationers, but refugees, coming to these communities uh, that are not as well off and depending on the hospitality of the people there, also putting the people there at risk by bringing slaves who might rebel, by making the the settlement a target for uh, Union military action. You get this class tension between people in the South not so well off and these wealthy planters who suddenly show up in their midst. I had not read anything about that before. You know, I mean, the class tensions might exist before the war, but what the war does is that it, it brings to the fore um, tensions in, in, in all kinds of ways that, that come from all kinds of sources. And, and the particular, um, uh, with the particular problem that you're mentioning, so mm-hmm. poor white women 
had always resented, right, rich white women, and you know, that's no surprise, and, and, and wealthy white women looked down upon poor white women. And in places where they came into contact, um, especially um, these areas or towns or villages where the elite went to vacation, um, as, you know, in the um, western part of North Carolina, um, poor whites or working class white people were accustomed to these people coming, you know, in the summer um, to these resort areas, to their homes in the mountains. But that was, they were not accustomed to them coming as refugees, as you mentioned, coming with nothing to give, coming with no money, uh, coming and bringing enslaved people uh, who are not um, happy to be on this journey with uh, uh, the people who enslaved them. And they know that there's a huge risk that these slaves would uh, rebel. And so the poor whites are very, very upset. And so you have these clashes between uh, poor whites in the mountains, for example, and the wealthy uh, uh, elite uh, uh, slaveholders who come um, because now this vacation place has become a place of refuge. And so the home is transplanted from, you know, the low country from Hilton Head or some of the other um, very islands or Charleston for that matter to Western North Carolina. And uh, it's, it's um, not only that place, but everywhere that the refugees go, they encounter resistance from people who have nothing to give them and who don't, you know, they can't afford to, to share what little they have. And so that's another part of the story of women in the war and women, um, uh, how women think about home that I wanted to, to make a part of this project. Now, another category that you, you discuss at some length, uh, of course, enslaved women in the South, uh, they traditionally, in, in many accounts, are not really thought of as political beings, uh, but you, you make clear, I, I can't resist sharing the anecdote you opened the chapter with of the uh, caddy, a woman in Mississippi, who upon learning that Lee's army has surrendered and the war is going to be over, goes up to her mistress, uh, lifts her skirt, and says, you can kiss my ass. Uh, that, uh, it, it, it's a delightful story. It's like what what we all imagine. As I put it in, I... I kept thinking, well, what would my mother say? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think given the circumstances, she ought to excuse such such language. Uh, Yes, yes. But the the, the crumbling of of authority uh, in the the slavery system is, again, runs through every, uh, every chapter in one way or another here. How... Uh, how does that happen? Uh, we, we talked about one example uh, already. The, the women of the South, uh, the enslaved women of the South, are not encompassed by the Confiscation Acts. They're not uh, allowed to serve, obviously, in the armed forces. Their status is really unclear as the war goes on. And uh, this seems to me a growing topic in scholarship. Uh, what, what did, 
what struck you most about this this nether world that that these women enter? I think what strikes me and struck me most is that um, these women, enslaved women, refused to um, accept um, the word of northern political leaders or President Lincoln, um, the idea that the war only concerned men and if it concerned women at all, it concerned white women. And so enslaved women, because of their history, brought to the war a political perspective. And that political perspective uh, told them that this war was about them, regardless of what Lincoln said. Uh, regardless of what Union Commander said, regardless of how many times they were told to go back, uh, how many times Union soldiers might allow uh, a slaveholder to come into camp to reclaim them, they kept pushing forward. Um, and so they enter Union lines, and there is absolutely nothing prepared to accept them, nothing. And so they force. Um, Lincoln's hand, and they forced the hands of, of 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 commanders. And there is in the confiscation uh, uh, laws, you know, that say if uh, a slave uh, comes uh, into Union lines, and and he or she, it doesn't give a gender, and that slave mm-hmm. is owned by uh, a disloyal person. Um, then we can accept that person into our lines, right? And they, then in 1962, Congress goes so far to say that these people are free. And it doesn't say um, that they're men. They have to be men. It doesn't give a gender. And so black women um, see no reason why it doesn't apply to them as well. But because the union doesn't see that they have anything to offer um, in terms of labor initially um, or soldiering later, it, it can't really conceive of a way, of a way to, to take them in and use them. And so black women, as they come in, and they come in, in such large numbers um, that they force the union to figure out something. And so one of the things that the government does, of course, is to put them to work on government-run plantations. Um, so in they the they do that. I, I'm, I'm going to mm-hmm. step in just because we need to take a short break. I want to come back sure. and pick up on this topic of, of the refugee camps uh, in the Mississippi Valley and elsewhere. We'll come back in just a moment. We're talking tonight with Thavolia Glimpf, author of The Women's Fight, The Civil War's Battles for Home, Freedom, and Nation. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. 
Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Thavolia Glimpf, author of The Women's Fight, The Civil War's Battles for Home, Freedom, and Nation. Uh, We were talking about the uh, starting to talk about the refugee camps, and I just want to ask a uh, question, uh, business end sort of question. Uh, Amy Morell Taylor's book came out just this past uh, year on uh, on refugee camps, and and, and was received a, a great deal of favorable attention, uh, and really brought the the topic to a lot of people's attention for the first time. And you mentioned at the beginning of the hour you were working on uh, research on a similar topic. Did that throw you for a loop when that book came out uh, in terms of your own research? Um, I knew that Amy was working on on refugees, and she knew that I was working on refugees, um, and I actually started working on it long before her. Um, Right. And so we've we've been, um, you know... um, uh, I, you know, gone to conferences and and heard her talk, and she certainly mm-hmm. talk, and and we've been on the programs together, and so it, no, it didn't. Um, of course, um, one always feels like goodness. I wish I had gotten my book out sooner, but <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that's always the case. But she wrote a, a wonderful book, and it deserved mm-hmm. all of the awards that it received, um, and I. You know, but you do at that point. I mean, you do have to stop and say, "Well, it's do I have anything to say um, uh, uh, to add to this conversation?" And I, mm-hmm. it took me a while to to make a decision, but I concluded that I did. And there are also several dissertations um, um, in progress um, uh, by students um, all across the country on mm-hmm. refugees. And so where I think my work is different um, is that I have been spending a lot of time uh, working with, uh, or thinking about, I should say, what it meant to live in a camp um, uh, if 
if you were in a camp in the Mississippi Valley, for example, as opposed to a camp um, in Virginia or in South Carolina, what difference did it make? What difference did it make if you went, uh, left slavery in the company of friends and family or a husband, or you left slavery by yourself? What difference did it make if in the camp uh, you were surrounded by these people from your community in uh, in the past? Um, I was uh, I have been influenced by studies of soldiers um, mm-hmm. that conclude have concluded that uh, men who uh, enlisted from the same town, the same village, or the same rural area. Um, in the same, you know, regiment, that they had a better chance of surviving the war. Um, And I wondered um, if that might be true for enslaved women. And so I wanted to look and compare these camps. And I was fortunate enough to get a grant from the NIH um, that allowed me to spend two years um, just researching uh, this topic, and I spent those two years at the National Archives. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, when I left, um, I left with enough material to make these really interesting comparisons. Um, and I'm interested in, in women, uh, you know, no one has, has written about uh, the Civil War hospitals um, and women. And Jim Downs' mm-hmm. book on um, health is, you know, mainly concerns the post-war period. And right. I'm mainly concerned with the wartime um, and the Freedmen's hospitals um, that were set up, uh, uh, often adjacent to camps or adjacent to uh, black regimental, uh, black regiments, rather, um, and they kept meticulous records of women who entered the hospitals. And one of the things I barely mentioned in the women's fight, but that is a bigger subject in the refugee book, when I came across um, in the medical records, uh, doctors' uh, notes uh, of women, enslaved women who had come in and had abortions, I was really taken aback um, because... My first thought, which I ultimately concluded was just the wrong way to think about it, was why would these women have an abortion at a moment the freedom was right there, right uh, in front of them. Um, and But the more I worked on that project, the more I understood why they did. And I couldn't account for the reasons for each instance uh, where a woman had an abortion that was in the records. But there were a few accounts where uh, I could, you know, I had the history. The woman had an abortion because she had been raped by uh, a soldier, and sometimes it was a a white Union soldier, sometimes it was a black Union soldier. Um, Or a woman decided she just did not have the resources to take care of a child in war-torn Mississippi. Um, when you don't know, even if you're in a camp, you don't know that camp is going to be dismantled the next day mm-hmm. uh, when the army moves on, or if it's going to be raided by Confederate um, uh, uh, regular or irregular 
uh, forces. And so women were making decisions about whether or not to have a home, a family, you know, based on whether or not they thought they could care for a child. And sometimes, and I don't, I can't speak with any authority for some of the cases, but I suspect that maybe, you know, there were women who just did not want a child. It may have been someone young, um, and I can't say for certain. Um, but I, that, you know, those kinds of records um, were important to me. And, and so my book will also be different um, in that I also look at orphans. Um, the, the Army kept um, very uh, good records on black Civil War orphans um, who often lived uh, in homes by themselves. Um, so you would have an orphan, orphan's child um, who might be 10 years old um, as the head of a household with two other orphan children in that household. And so I see them in the ration um, books, and I can trace, you know, uh, them and, and, and compare and count. Uh, so there's a lot of counting going on because I'm, I'm interested in numbers and how many children were refugees, how many enslaved women became refugees, how many were in this particular camp or that particular camp. So I think there's so much work that remains to be done that my work will just be an addition, um, but it will not complete the project that needs to be completed um, uh, to get a full handle on uh, this problem of refugees uh, that I'm also looking at um, as a humanitarian crisis. Well, I, I think nobody would say, uh, hey, there's already a book about the wilderness campaign. We don't need another one. Uh, there are you know, yeah. hundreds on Gettysburg. Uh, so there's certainly right. room for much, much more scholarship on the refugee camps. Uh, and, and your contribution is something I know we'll all look forward to reading. Let me ask you, we have just a few minutes left, but I'm, I'm curious, as you were doing the research for this book, do you recall what surprised you most to discover? as you were reading about the, these women uh, across these lines of, of class and race and region? I think what surprised me most was the uh, learning more about Northern white women hmm. um, and, and the ways in which they were slavery-complicated um, their homes, even though slavery did not exist in the North. I think learning about their entanglement with slavery still, um, whether it's through the ownership of stock on a, uh, um, in a, a southern bank or a railroad or um, um, ownership of stock in a sugar refinery in uh, Manhattan, um, you know, so how I began to ask uh, this question, how does a woman who owns stock in a sugar refinery or a bank that services plantations or who has lived on, whose husband um, owns a Cuban plantation, how can they be abolitionist? And what kind of abolitionist can they be? So the, that would be the, the the most striking thing I would say, sort of discovering the extent to which northern women 
still had ties to plantation slavery, um, and that many of these women who had these ties were in the forefront of the abolitionist movement. I th- that was very interesting. That You talk about how these families tend to have uh, cleansing stories, you call them, uh, uh, you know, family stories about how, yes, we have visited friends at plantations in the South, and yes, we have these connections, but we are have been I don't know, forgiven, redeemed, exempted uh, from participation right. because uh, of some incident where a slave was nice to us. And, and uh, right. I, I, that, that was very interesting. Well, that, yeah, that, you know, the, I guess related to that were the women, the northern women who who came uh, to the South to help. But but who, like white Southerners, um, their, what they thought about black people um, didn't lend itself to their being interested in and having interested in having relations of equality with the people that they encountered in the South, the refugees or the people um, in the low country, South Carolina. So the, 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 the fact of the matter is, is that racism is so pervasive that it it harmed Northerners too, white Northerners, and it harmed their relationships with black people. Um, and so it, it became, after I started seeing these sorts of things, um, I saw more and more cases where you have white women who, who just really want to be white northern women who say they really want to be a plantation mistress, right? And there are few who actually come to the South for various reasons, and they make it very clear that what they want is to live this life, this going-with-the-wind life. Um, and I found that striking as well. That really was, that, that these some of them come, say, South to teach refugees to... Uh, theoretically, for the benefit of the the formerly enslaved, but when they find themselves in a uh, situation where they suddenly have an unpaid staff of a dozen uh, formerly enslaved people now cooking and cleaning for them, uh, it turns the head, and 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 suddenly they're yes. uh, they're they're this pseudo plantation mistress, as you say. So yes. um, we have just. 20 seconds. Let me ask you a, a question I, I ask occasionally. If you had a time machine and could go back uh-huh. and talk to one of the people you studied for 30 minutes, uh, that's all you get. Uh, in 30 seconds, who would you want to talk to? Sarah. So uh, the woman who refused who did, to did not join go. her. Yes. I'd love to talk to Sarah. And I'd love to, you know, there There was a little girl I'd love to talk to, a little girl who lived on the Cumbee River, um, and she was there when the Union forces with Tupman, Harriet Tupman, went up the Cumbee uh, on that raid and brought out 700-plus enslaved mm-hmm. people. And this little girl was trying to get to the boat, and she was running to the boat, and 
um, the um, overseer of the plantation and the Confederate forces, you know, uh, so much shot her, and she fell um, after the bullet hit her. And then she got up and she started running again, um, but she wasn't quick enough, and, and so they captured her and brought her back. I don't know what happened to her, but I I'd love to know if she made it to freedom. Ah, that we we would all like to know that. Well. Yeah. Unfortunately, we are out of time. It has been a pleasure talking with you. This book is a, uh, I think rich was the adjective that kept coming to mind. It is uh, uh, really tells a lot of important stories that are just starting to be told. And it is the, the tip of the iceberg to follow, not, not the completion of anything. Uh, the book is called The Women's Fight, The Civil War's Battles for Home, Freedom, and Nation. Author is our guest tonight. Tavolia Glimpf. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.